Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leaf Fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan, joined by my winger, Ricky Squid Five. How are we keeping today, Squid? Uh, we're doing pretty good. Uh, no complaints. You know, the weather's getting a little cooler. Fall's kind of <laughs> setting in here, but, yep. you know, what are you going to do? It, uh, it's uh, part of... Uh, our everyday yearly thing, and we pretty soon we're going to have snow. Well, it's getting a little cooler, getting changed in the parking lot, going to play shinny hockey, so I can tell you that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know the weather is definitely changing. And speaking of changes, we've had some changes on the Leafs in the last time since we've spoke. What do you think of all the moves that uh, Mr. Dupas has made? Well, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, I don't think anybody anything will really be able to – you know, judge anything until the next season and see how they do, uh, see how they do in the playoffs. But they've added some some pretty decent players: Wayne Simmons, T.J. Brody, Zach Bergosian, guys that I think are going to help their team play a little bit differently and play a little bit uh, harder and harder to play against. As Kyle mentioned, that that's what he wants and. Uh, I think guys like that uh, probably are going to help them. Uh, now, they lost Kyle Clifford, which, uh, you know, they lost a little bit of jam there. But and Kapanen, Janssen, uh, CC Barry on defense. But they filled those holes very, very nicely with uh, Bergosian and uh, Brody. So, again, everything looks good on paper. <laughs> but we all know that on paper doesn't matter. It's what you do on the ice. Exactly right. And Jimmy Vesey looks like he's pretty excited to, to come back and give it another shot. The Leafs pursued him a few years ago coming out of college, and now they finally got him. Uh, so I think that uh, Dubas is – one of the things he's doing well, he's stuck the Marlies up, which is some good depth players for Toronto. Obviously, injuries always have a big play in the National Hockey League. And with an unlimited uh, cap space in the AHL, that luxury, for lack of a better word, I think he's doing a very good job taking advantage of that. So, again, we can just look to what Vegas did this week with Petrangelo and the moves they had to make. Mm-hmm. Just consider if Toronto gave away, say, Kerfoot and Morgan Riley to make room for Petrangelo, like Vegas did, giving away Stasny and uh, Schmidt to make room and just basically gave those players away. Could you imagine what they what, what be going through the press right now and the, the ripping you'd be taking? Oh, if that was in Toronto, yes, it would be ridiculous uh, how bad the press would be all over management and and making those moves. And uh, and one guy I forgot was, uh, and and a guy that I think probably is under the radar is Travis Boyd Mm -hmm. and uh, out of Washington. And uh, I know talking to a good friend of mine who's the head professional scout with the Washington Capitals, and uh, they gave up Chandler Stevenson to keep Boyd. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that tells me that they, they thought a lot of him. And he could be a guy that, you know, could be one of those X factors going forward. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, I mean, no, that's what you have to do. You got to look for that, you know, diamond interrupt is probably the bad word to use. But that's really what you have to do. You got to try and squeeze that last little bit of energy and skill out of these guys while you can and you give them that little bit of a hope so I, I, I like the moves they've made now it's up to the players because you know as well as I do Squid at some point the players have to be accountable 
Well, there's no question. And I think the accountability uh, factor, I don't, I'm not sure has been there as uh, tight and, and as it should be recently. So, yes, I think it's, it's down now to the, the fact that the players have to get it done on the ice. And if, you know, if they can't, what's going to happen? Well, we don't know, but I would imagine that most of management's jobs are kind of balancing in the air. And if they don't make the playoffs or they get beat out in the first round again, you should, you could see some changes uh, in personnel, not player wise person, uh, you know, uh, coaching general managers, that sort yep. of thing. But Again, to blame them when I think they've gone out and done a pretty good job of filling in the holes they needed to. Uh, again, yes, it is up to the players. And if the players don't get it done, you know, maybe it's time to move someone. Yep, and that's, that's, that's always the case. And again, it's always a very debatable subject, as we know. And the next round of discussions that we see coming out or talk about the league maybe starting up in January, maybe possibly February. I was reading a lot of reports of Smarner's talk of maybe a couple of different divisions, one being a Canadian division. Canadian. And that can be kind of exciting uh, to, with those, those matchups. And every Canadian team has basically improved this year. So it could be a pretty competitive division, I would say, if that does come to fruition. Yeah, I, I would love to see it, to be quite honest with you. I, mean, I think just, it'd be great. You know, just the Canadian teams playing each other for uh, – well, they want to get 82 games in, but who knows if they will. But yep. uh, And I think perhaps there's probably more than a better chance that that's going to happen because of the border closure. I don't think the border is going to be opening up, you know, by January, to be quite honest with you, as my personal opinion. And so I think you, you might see a Canadian. I'd love to see that. I really would. I, I would love to see yeah. Calgary and Edmonton have to go at it a bunch of times. Vancouver, you know, Winnipeg, you know, and, and like you said, most of these teams have really gotten better. Absolutely. Every you one know, of them. Every one of them. And, uh, you know, the Ottawa Senators, maybe not right away, but certainly they've set themselves up for a couple of years, two or three years down the road. But boy, oh boy, would I ever love to see a Canadian division. I think that would be great. Yep, it would be. And it would be new, some old rivalries, boys. Yeah. So it should be fun. And uh, I think it's going to be a subject they're going to be talking about for the next little while, obviously. And same with we're going to be debating a lot of the moves that have been taking place around in the National Hockey League. And there's been a lot of moves taking place. And one move we forgot to mention here this morning is our guest today, who's a pretty colorful character to speak <laughs> nonetheless of. And I'm referring to, of course, uh, Jeremy Roenick, uh, otherwise known as JR. Uh, he's going to be joining us in a couple of minutes. So I think uh, any, last, any last thoughts about what you've seen before we bring JR in? Any last thoughts of what you've thought uh, has happened around the league or anybody who's made a real good move outside of what we talked about in Canada? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, again, you know, thing you can put whatever you want down on paper, but at the end of the day, it's what you do on the ice. And, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of preparation that has to go into the next season in a short period of time, not a long period of time. And, uh, again, uh, put whatever you want on paper, but the biggest takeaway for me is a carousel of goalies. <laughs> How many oh, goalies wow. have changed places? Like, it's unbelievable. 
Well, in Vegas has got almost $13 million tied up in two and no cap space left. So it's going to be, there's maybe another move to happen there, although they say they're going to start the season with the two of them, but who knows? We'll, so we'll see. Well, they always say that, don't they? Uh, <laughs> yes. That's, uh, it's almost like a future considerations. Okay. So anyway, we, uh, we will uh, definitely, as I said a couple of seconds ago, not to be repetitious, but we will definitely have further to talk on these subjects moving forward. So I think it's time now we tune in and listen to what Mr. Ronick has to say. Great, our guest today has a very impressive resume. 20-year career, 500-goal score. Uh, much like you, part of the 50-goal club a couple of times. Uh, almost an average of a point a game over 1,363 games, represented his country in international play, the USA, of course, I'm talking about. And one of the lovable, colorful characters in the game of hockey, we welcome Jeremy Ronick. JR, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. Squid, what's going on? How you doing, pal? I'm great, buddy. I'm great. I'm just uh, uh, having a blast and uh, getting older, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, but that's life, right? That's right. That's right. So, Jr., how you keeping busy these days? Oh wow. Um, well, at the moment, I am in Miami right now with the President of the United States, Mr. Trump. Just had a uh, roundtable uh, day yesterday for a bunch of athletes and talking politics and trying to raise money for the president and keep him in office for another four years. So uh, we got to uh, see him yesterday, listen to him talk and. Um, he had a, a town hall last night. I'm actually really busy doing uh, a lot of other things, trying to save this world. To tell you the truth, I'm working for a therapeutic company, uh, doing therapeutic antibodies to try to uh, mm -hmm. to try to get everybody healed and, and protected from this awful virus that has uh, decimated our our lives over the last eight mm -hmm. months, seven months, and. Um, I'm getting ready to start a whiskey company, which is uh, a lot of a lot of fun to me for me, uh, a spirit. So I'm enjoying that, playing lots of golf, enjoying San Diego and the beach, and um, that just doesn't seem to be that much time in the day. But uh, you've got a podcast you know, coming myself. out too. You were telling me about which uh, and, and and I have a streaming network that's coming yeah. out probably in about a month called No Filter Broadcast. Um, I teamed up with. Um, a friend of mine, Eric Burns, who's on uh, Major League Baseball Network. Uh, he was a longtime MLB player, just an amazing, amazing personality, and a couple, couple people from the Silicon Valley. And we we know what happens in Silicon Valley. They uh, they're very, very smart, techie people, and they're coming up with this uh, with this new platform that is going to be very, very fan engaging. Um, we're going to have the ability to bring fans onto our onto our platform, have debates, have conversations, uh, give them the chance to get their opinions out, and and uh, have a lot of fun. It's 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 going to be uh, a lot of broadcasting, but it's also going to be a lot of original content. So, um, and when it's called No Filter Broadcast, you know that's going to be um, right up my alley. Yeah, right in your <laughs> uh, face. There's, well, yeah, there's. There's no question about it. Yeah. Well, you know, JR, that's exactly what we're, uh, we're leading right into it. But we'll start off a little bit on the mild side before we get to that, because I, I know you will have a couple for us. But uh, you took to the, age of the game at the age of four. I, I don't want to say almost by accident, but a friend of yours got you to play, so you'd have somebody yeah. to come along and play the game of hockey. Yeah. You played in the Quebec PB tournament a couple times. Like, why don't you just, like, for viewers who may be, and listeners and viewers who aren't aware of this, maybe just talk us through your minor days of hockey. We'd have to go into yeah. Thayer. Yeah, it was, um, it was kind of interesting. I lived with my parents and, and 
should say my family, we lived in an apartment building um, in Connecticut uh, when I was really young. And there's a little kid next to me that I used to play with my little, uh, my little play friend uh, that um, was the same age. And his mom came over to, uh, to the apartment one day and said, you know, John is going to take hockey lessons. You know, will Jeremy come and keep him company? Because if he doesn't, he's, he's, he's just, he's going to lose interest. He's not going to want to go. And maybe, you know, Jeremy keeps him company. He'd be more inclined to stay and go. So my mom's like, sure. And we had no equipment. We got these awful, awful double runner skates and uh, she put a football helmet on me and took me to the arena and put me on the ice and I was I was gone and I loved it so much that um, it, it was hard for me to get off and um, I don't think my little friend liked it so much but uh, I loved it and it, it just seemed to click my mom said I, I went on and you know I fell a few times but then once, once I got the hang of it it was um, she had to come on the ice and actually grab me to come off to come off the ice and uh, I loved it right from the beginning and you know I didn't I didn't really play on a team until I was about uh, six years old. So I just skated for two years and then learned how to skate and, and stayed away from a team because uh, my dad wanted to make sure that he, that I uh, learned to skate, learned to skate properly. And um, skating was the number one important thing to him. My dad always used to say to me, the puck doesn't matter if you can't get to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, the power skating, the speed, the, uh, the ability to be a good skater was very important to my dad. So I did that. I did that a lot early power skating um, uh, camps and classes like galore. Um, it seemed that at times that I wouldn't even touch the puck. Um, and uh, at seven years old uh, is when um, I was really playing some, some really, really good competitive hockey. And that's actually when I met Gordy Howe. Um, I don't know if you've, you've heard my story about Gordy Howe. Dumping, dumping snow on my head when I was seven years old. So it was in Hartford. We were practicing, yeah. and or we had we had a game. And I rushed uh, rushed uh, out of the locker room after our game because the Hartford Whalers were coming on to do yeah. their pregame skate, uh, their morning skate. Um, it was at our local arena. And remember, all the kids are hanging over the glass and they're looking and they're watching. You know, Bob, uh, you know, Gordy Howe, Mark Howe, Marty Howe. Uh, we're on the same team at that time. It was like 1977, 1978. And um, Gordy Howe came by me and picked up some snow and dumped it on my head. And I was like, you know, he came by and winked at me. And, and it was like the coolest thing that had ever happened to me. You know, it's Gordy Howe just dumped snow on my head. He didn't dump snow on anybody else's head. He dumped it on mine. And, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was one of the coolest things. And I think that's where I really found out that athletes are – uh, can really make a difference and, and really um, give kids something to work for. Uh, you can um, idolize, idolize these guys and, and give people stories and just give, give them a nice warm feeling in their hearts. And I tried to do that when I became pro, but uh, you know, I moved all the way up and down the, the Eastern seaboard a lot. I went to uh, Connecticut a couple times, New York. I moved to, I moved to Virginia when I was 10 years old and actually played in Virginia for, believe it or not, and then flew up to Newark on weekends to play for the New Jersey Rockets. And the New Jersey Rockets was uh, was one of the best teams in the country. And we won two national championships. But my mom would take me out of school at about 1.30 every Friday, take me to the airport, and I'd jump on a People's Express out of Dulles Airport, fly up to Newark. I'd get picked up by one of uh, my teammates' uh, um, moms. 
and we go right to practice or right to a game. And, um, you know, I played, I, I did that every weekend for, uh, 80, 80, 85, some odd games and then national championships. And it was, it was really crazy. It was, um, it was a nutty way to, to be on the best teams, but, um, you know, then up to up to high school, uh, went to Thayer Academy at Tony Amonti, as uh, as you know, yeah. Squid. Um, yeah. He was my he was my line mate at uh, Thayer Academy. We won two New England championships. Had an amazing team, and um, to have a line mate like Tony Amonti in high school, and then be able to play in the pros, like in Chicago with Tony and Philly with Tony, was a very rare thing. But uh, I call Tony my um, he's my soulmate of line mates. The soulmate of line mates. That is uh, Tony Monty. So, and then and then I went to pro at eighteen. So that's kind of a roundabout, uh, you know, real quick synopsis of my my hockey youth. Oh no! So uh, yeah, but uh, coming out of there though, you were drafted to the NHL. Now, not many. I would probably guess off the top of my head, maybe a half a dozen players maybe come out of high school get drafted in the National Hockey League. So that would have been a pretty big deal at the time for you to have that, have that happen to you. You know what? It's a it's a really good point by you, especially in the '80s, right? Yeah. So, to um, it was so much of a Canadian uh, uh, strength in terms of the the dominance of hockey in the National Hockey League, the um, the scouting staff, the mentality of of what type of players that they drafted. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. Hockey players and and uh, Canadians, it, I mean, that's their life. It's it, yeah. to, to play hockey like a Canadian was very important, especially in the 80s. And uh, they're the best, I th think they were the best uh, nation in the world. And I think the mentality of a Canadian hockey player is really strong. Uh, they want players to play a certain way. They want them to look a certain way. They want them to be a certain size. And I did not fit that mold. And a lot of high school players at that time didn't fit that mold. It was kind of like the, the anti-draft to draft a, a, a high school uh, hockey player out of the U.S., especially – when they weighed 150 pounds like I did. So um, I was, it was a very rare uh, draft, but I remember Jack Davidson uh, at the draft in the Chicago Blackhawks. And this was a, this made me feel really good. And I owe him uh, for the rest of my life uh, when they were in the draft pre-draft meetings and Chicago was trying to decide who they were going to pick. And Jack Davidson uh, at the time, who was a, a wonderful man, one of the head scouts for the Chicago Blackhawks, told Bob Paulford and Mike Keenan and the rest of the staff that said, if you don't draft this kid, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm done. And that's how much he believed in me as a, as a, as a player. So to go eighth overall, um, 1988 and having um, a great man like Jack Davidson literally put his, his, uh, his career on the line um, was pretty. And Sean Cody also, who was another great uh, scout for the Blackhawks and was the Boston area guy literally, you know, put their, their jobs on the line to say, you draft this kid or we're quitting. Now you, um, you got snow dumped in your head by Gordy Howe. You then meet another icon, Canadian icon, Wayne Gretzky, who recruited yeah. to come and play in Hull. How did that all come about? It was crazy. Cause I was 14 years old. So it was that time uh, to possibly maybe go play juniors. Um, I was playing and uh, I was a freshman. I think I was a freshman in high school. And I was stayed behind a couple of years in, in school because of my lack of schooling that hockey took away um, <laughs> from traveling. Um, it wasn't because of my, it wasn't because of my grades. It wasn't because how dumb or smart I was, even though 
that wasn't there either. But um, so I was 14 playing high school hockey uh, and I was a freshman and I get a call from Charlie Henry and Charlie Henry was the GM of Hull, who was uh, Wayne Gretzky's uh, junior team. And I, I, I knew a lot about, um, about the juniors because I would go up to Canada and watch, I would go up to Montreal really and watch the, the Verdun Canadians play. Um, Verdun was a, was, was one of the better Quebec, Quebec teams, uh, Quebec major junior teams up there. So my dad and I would drive on weekends just to go watch junior hockey players play. And I thought it was awesome. So I knew what it was all about. And, uh, so Charlie Henry goes, Wayne Gretzky's coming to Boston and wants to invite you to a game and breakfast and uh, talk about maybe going to play for us. You know, what are you you're <laughs> shitting me? What are you talking about? Wayne Gretzky wants to come see me. I'm 14, I'm literally 14 years old. I'm a hundred, yeah. I'm 120 pounds. I'm this little pipsqueak of a guy. Um, granted I was good, but I mean, Wayne Gretzky's going to come to Boston. He wants to see me. I said, <laughs> I said, sure. So, I mean, my dad and mom, we went down to Boston. We went to the hotel. Wayne Gretzky came down, had breakfast with us took me into the, into the, into Boston garden, into the locker room and pretty much showed me what it was like, um, you know, yeah. being a pro and I could, couldn't believe it. Like it was hard for me to speak uh, what was going on, you know, seeing Paul Coffey and Mark Messier and, and Anderson and all these guys that I've, that I watch on television and uh, brought me in after the game also. And asked, was, was telling me what, all about Hall and how it helped the, your career and playing in the best, the, you know, the best, players and yeah. the best talent and uh, I, I just didn't know what to say the only problem was is my mom was totally against it so I was like oh yeah I'll go play for for Wayne Gretzky's team Wayne Gretzky how can you say no to Wayne Gretzky um, and my mom said I don't care who Wayne Gretzky is you're not leaving home and I was like oh, okay so I ended up staying at the Air Academy because my mom um, she didn't want me to leave and go away from her she was uh, she was too much of a of a homebody for her kid so really cool. It was really cool to have uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, looking at me at the time. And it was, I told this story with him. So in uh, 1991, so this is only seven years, seven years after was my first all-star game in Chicago. And who sat right next to me in the locker room, my first all-star game in Chicago, obviously my home city was Wayne Gretzky. Oh. And I said, um, and I said, I said, Wayne, I said, how weird is this, right? <laughs> seven years, seven years ago, you're asking me to go play for your for your junior team. And now I'm sitting right next to you in an all-star game. How about that, big boy? And he's like, it's amazing. That yeah, it was it was pretty it was a fun story. Now uh, he he also got you to recruit a little bit. And I think you have you have a pretty funny uh, yeah, story. Yeah. One of your buddies. Uh... Yeah. So that's funny. So um so I, I so I ended up getting drafted at 18 years old. Uh, I went to Chicago, um, and that's when, you know, I met uh, Rick. Um, I came into camp about a week late and um, ended up ended up making the team, playing four games, not playing very well, by the way. Um, and I just needed a little, little bit more tutelage, a little bit more play. So I went to play in Hall. So I ended up playing for Wayne Gretzky's team in the kind of a, a, you know, yeah, the, backwards, the yeah. backwards way, right? Yeah. Played 27 games, had like 76 points in 27 games, lit it up, um, went back up to Chicago in February. And this is this is where it kind of gets kind of interesting. And I scored my first goal on, on Valentine's Day. 
and I pretty much stayed with Chicago the rest of that year um, in 1988, 89. So I get a call from Charlie Henry. Um, this is probably in the summer of 1989 after my first season yeah. pro. And Charlie Henry goes, you had a blast up here, didn't you? You loved Hall. Can you do me a favor? Can you call Keith Kachuk and try to convince him to come up and play for, for, for us here in, uh, in Hall? So I'm sure, you know, so I, I call Keith Kachuk and I'm like, um, hey, Keith, this is Jeremy Roenick. You know, never didn't know the kid, didn't know him. I've heard of him. I said, uh, so, you know, you want to go play in junior? You should go play in Hall. It's Gretzky's team. It's a great place. You know, you know, it's, it's, I had a blast there. I played great hockey there. You learn. And, and Keith goes, no, thanks, JR. I'm going to Boston. Click. <laughs> <laughs> going to Boston University. I'm like, okay. Typical, typical Keith Kachuk, right? Inner city, Boston, big, big accent. No, thanks, JR. I'm going to Boston University. See ya. Click. I'm like, <laughs> okay, nice conversation. Um, and then ended up playing with Keith Kachuk, you know, about, yeah. what, six years later in, in six years, five years later in Phoenix, as he was the captain at the time, so our assistant captain at the time. Um, amazing, amazing, amazing man, Keith Kachuk was. Well, we'll come back to him. Uh, Now, talk about the World Juniors. You played there a couple times, led to scoring the second time. You had a couple pretty good line mates uh, that one year with uh, Medano and John LeClaire. Yeah, I had had Medano and John LeClaire one year, and I had Medano and Tony Amante in my second year, 1989. Um, The same year I was just talking about my rookie year, they allowed me to go play in the World Juniors. That was in Alaska. So it was uh, Tony Amante, myself, and Mike Medano um, playing – against the, their number one line, the Russian team, Bure, Fedorov, and McGill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was, the, that was the number one line for, uh, for the Russians, and it was, it was unbelievable. I, um, I, I, was, I had very successful junior, um, uh, junior uh, numbers. Um, went to Russia uh, my first year in 80, 88, and then, like I just said, Alaska. I, I held the uh, the American scoring record, most points scored in in the World Juniors for for Americans, um, and I think that my record held for almost almost twenty twenty five years of uh, the most points. Uh, that Schrader Schrader Schroeder um, broke my record, mm-hmm. but there's a little asterisk. He played three World Juniors. I only played two. I think he has, I think. So I, I have to get that in there because it took him 25 years, 25 years to break the record, but it took him eight more games to do it. So that's now that's let's cool. go to your first uh, camp uh, and meeting Mike Keenan. And as an 18 year old, you're 150 pounds. You're coming out of a high school. Uh, you, you're again, your first couple exhibition games, I think he set the record pretty straight of how he wanted you to play. I think I think you know the incident I'm referring to. He did, and I'm 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 actually this is actually a, a pretty interesting question because I'm going to test Squid's memory here, Rick's memory, <laughs> and I don't know if he remembers this, um, but it's it it kind of defined um, me as a as a person, and so did uh, my relationship with Mike Keenan. So I told you earlier, I was a week late to camp. Uh, you know, couldn't come to a contract, um, you know, decision with the Blackhawks. We were in, a, in a obviously quarreling over contract. But anyway, when I finally decided to go, 
I came into Chicago and everybody's like, well, the number one pick is coming in. Here comes, it's finally coming. I walk in and everybody's like, where's the, where's the number one pick? And then they're like, that's him. That, that's him. And I'm like, that kid looks like he should be in, it looks like he should be in kindergarten. Right. I'm like, this, that's not. So I, I come in, walk into the room. And the first guy I run into, the first guy I see is Al Secord. Not the right person to see the first person that you walk into a lo- professional locker room with. And he had no clothes on. He had receding hair, no teeth, hair all over his chest. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, I'm coming out of high school hockey. I like, literally, I just left my junior year. I, you know, Tony Monty was in math class in high school. And here I am walking into Chicago Blackhawks locker room. And going into, you know, a locker room where that looked like a bunch of inmates were walking around. Like, I have to play hockey against these guys. And I remember the whole time I was on the plane, my agent at the time was saying, listen, don't be nervous. Make sure you go out and play your style of game. Make sure you respect them, but make sure they respect you back. Don't let them push you around. Don't let them take advantage of you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So that's all in my head. Uh, and now, now I walk in, I'm like, these guys are going to respect. I have to, I have to play against these guys. So I remember I got on the ice and squid. I don't know if you remember this, but um, this, this part, this, this was the first, literally the first game and the first day that I jumped on, you know, Mike Keenan liked to have scrimmages that we didn't have all these, these, uh, you know, weights and in the gyms and practices. So I jump on playing in the first game I, I'm having a great game I score a goal um, you had the puck and I kind of snuck up behind you and kind of clipped you and took the puck away from you and I don't know if you remember this but you slashed me in the leg <laughs> I don't think you liked it and it hurt so bad and I freaked out and I literally snapped because you slashed me and I turned around and two-handed you back and you're kind of like looking at me like everybody looking at me like that young kid just just slashed red vibe. Like just slashed him right like right over the over the legs or over the over the chest. I'm like, and I was sitting there and I'm like, oh shit. Did I rick vibe? And I kept going. And you came up to me after and said, kid, don't ever, don't ever disrespect me like that again. I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. Vibe. I don't <laughs> you know well, I, I don't know if you remember that squid. Yeah, but yeah, I, but you had to do that to to kind of get respect back in those days. And that, that's kind of, you know, one of the things that I learned when I started from John Brophy uh, in the WHA was if you're not going to stick up for yourself and expect yep. other guys to fight your battles, then they're going to run you out of the building and they're yep, going to run you exactly out of the right. That's and, exactly how it was. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, yep. I, I wasn't too happy about it, but well. at the same time, I'm going, I'm going okay. <laughs> I you know what? He's like, learning quickly. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, of all people, right? Rick Vive, right? The just the Mr. 50 goal man and guy that, you know, he's, I just said, oh, I'm, I'm like, Mr. Vive, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm like, just, I mean, I'm like, gosh, I don't even know what to say at, at this time. But um, it, it, was a, it was a defining, a quick defining moment for me because, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people were like, this kid's nuts. We don't want to mess with this kid. So the next game, the first, the second preseason game, we're playing in Kalamazoo. And um, 
you know, I, I was never a physical guy uh, playing in high school. I was just speed. I was just get the puck and go. Someone yeah. had the puck. I, I wasn't, a, I wasn't much of a hitter. Um, so I'm playing Kalamazoo, playing Minnesota North stars. And, you know, Rick, you remember how, how Keenan was. He wanted wow. it to be mean. He wanted it to be dirty. He wanted it to be physical. He wanted you to hit everything. Well, I was only 150 pounds. So I, I tried to stay away from the hitting. So I would skate at the guy with the puck. And he'd pass it, and I'd swoop away chasing the puck. Keenan wanted you to finish every check, and I didn't do that. So finally, in the second period, I swooped by probably my 15th player and didn't finish my check. <laughs> came back to the bench. And Mike Keenan came running down, the, running down the bench, literally grabbed my throat right here, pulled me back, okay, and had his fingers behind my, my – my Adam's apple? Here. Yeah, oh, my yeah. Adam's apple, squeezing it. And he squeezed it and he yelled. He screamed in my, in my face. If you ever fucking swing past a check again, you'll never play again for me. As long as you live, you'll never play a game in the National Hockey League. And I had like tears coming out of my eyes. I don't know if they were tears or his spit all over my face, screaming. I was like, oh, no. So now I'm like, my I'm not going to play in this league unless I hit. So next thing, next shift, I go out and I use my speed and I flew with the first guy and I finished my check and I knocked this guy flailing and I became like a human pinball. Um, and I remember I had these big shoulder pads because I was so little and I used my speed as my velocity on uh, my velocity and, and my, my force because I, I wasn't strong, but you know what I found? I found that I could score goals. I could make plays and now I can hit really hard and the fans loved either thing that I did and hitting became a big part of my game. Cause I, I just love the feeling of putting my shoulder right through someone's chest or right through someone's chin, scoring a goal, making the big hit. And it, I think, you know, Mike Keenan really liked the way that I played in that, that style. He taught me to be that physical all around player but he scared the shit out of me doing it. And you remember how Mike was. Mike wanted everybody to be uncomfortable. He, he, didn't, yeah. he, he, didn't mind, he didn't mind fights. He wanted fights during practice. Um, he, he, he always thought um, comfort led to complacency. He always said, I don't care if you're pissed off. He said negative energy is better than no energy at all. So he would scream. He would yell. He would, he would do things to you that, that pissed you off. He was a very difficult coach to play against. But – we we had a we had a great team because of it, and we had a tough team because of it. I'm, you remember Rick coming up those stairs at Chicago Stadium? Yeah. We already had a two goal lead before that game even started because players were a afraid of the building, the fans, and us as a as a team. You know, Keenan had us mentally charged like that. He well, what did. About I did. I didn't get much of a chance to show that because he didn't <laughs> play me a whole lot, but. Um, Unfortunately, after a 43-goal season, I guess I wasn't good enough to play. Yeah. But, well, see, um, but that's Mike, right? If Mike doesn't like you, well, you're gone. Yeah, that's the way Mike was. And, and he picked on Savvy. He picked yeah. on Doug Wilson. He yeah. wanted to be in charge. And yeah. he wasn't going to let any players uh, be above him, obviously. And I, I, I remember a good story with Mike Keenan was I went into him and I said, you know, first of all, I was like, what am I going to do? Like, he's just going to tell me to get the hell out of his office. But I said, Mike, look, I'm not that old. I, I was just playing power play at the time, and he would only kick me in the rear end when it was 
time to go out and stand in front of the net and get knocked around. And so I went in and I said, Mike, I, give me an opportunity, you know, give me five games. And then if I don't do what you think I can do, then do whatever the hell you want. And uh, I was, I was shocked. He said, okay. And I said, so anyway, I got a chance to play five, five, well, four games actually. And then in my fifth game, uh, we were in Calgary and we had just played in Edmonton the night before and I had a, a couple of points and we won the game and he even said great game in the airport on the way to Calgary that night and uh, played one shift, came off the ice and uh, the guy from Hockey Night Canada is waiting with the towel and the water to take me down the hall to the studio. And Mike walks up and he says, where are you going? <laughs> I said, well, I got to go do this interview because obviously they talked to the coach first and the player. And uh, he goes, turns to the guy and he says, you're not taking this guy. Let me get you someone who wants to play the game. Oh not, th my not this lazy son of a bitch. And I'm, I'm, th I'm standing there literally like a foot away from him. And I'm like, do I grab him by the throat? Do I hit him? Do I punch him? And... You know, it was just uh, – I just told him off. And and then I got traded the day after Christmas. So uh, that was, uh, that was yeah. the end of my days in Chicago. <laughs> well, here's, there's, a, there's a funny story that happened, um, and you said you were talking about savvy. Um, it's a savvy and keen story. So we, um, we didn't play very well the day before, and we had practice the next day at Chicago Stadium. And I remember walking up on the stadium. The lights were still out. The nets weren't on the ice, no pucks. And everybody came up. And, you know, when you get on the ice, you skate around, waiting for the coaches to come up. And so we were skating around, skating around, skating around. And it was about 30 minutes. And still the coaches, the coaches weren't up on the ice. So we're like, oh, shit, we're going to get, we're going to get wrecked today. So all of a sudden the lights go up to about 40 minutes. Now the ice is like, it's, it's, it's all beat up from us just circling around the ice. So Mike Keenan comes up with a chair. And he sits at center ice and he sits on the chair. He said, half on the goal line, half on the boards. So he lined up and he blew the whistle. He goes, and he points. He goes, you guys, down and back. The goal line goes, goal line, goal line. Then he point at the sideboards, over and back, over, back. We did that for 15 minutes. Then he said, switch. So the line switched. You go on the goal line, then you go to the boards. Back and forth, up and down did that for 15 minutes we did that for three for four boards finally we're doing this for an hour and trent yanni stops on one line rush stops at the blue line stops skating yanni go again mike says so yanni goes down and back now he's goal line to goal line he stops at the top of the circles yanni go again so he goes all the way down all the way back stops at the bottom of the circle yanni go again Trent Yanni goes all the way down. He stops this far from the goal line. Yanni, go again. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're all thanking, thanking God Trent stopped, stopped skating because we're, like, getting ready to puke ourselves. But anyway, so Trent was so mad. Trent was so mad. He skated through center ice, and he crushes Mike Keenan off the bench. <laughs> Hammers him. <laughs> Hammers him, right? Mike Keenan gets up and goes, it's about fucking time you hit somebody, Trent. Everybody off the ice. <laughs> right? So as we're going off the ice, Savvy, in his French accent voice, goes, God damn it. If I knew that's all we had to do to get off the ice, I would have hit them first fucking shift. 
<laughs> well, a similar first first ship. A similar one like that. I remember. Uh, I, I don't know if you were there. Uh, well, yeah, you must have been there, there. But I was there. I was there. I remember. We I remember were down and back, down and back, down and back, and Savvy kept turning. Yeah. Kept turning instead of stopping at the boards, and Mike would just continue to tell our group to keep on going, and uh, you know, I was cramping up like crazy. I mean, I must have went like thirty times in a row. It seemed like it anyway. And finally, Doug Wilson, Savvy's getting ready to turn again, and Doug Wilson grabbed him and threw him against the goddamn glass and said, stop, or else we're going to be doing this all day. Yep. <laughs> and then I remember Savvy, that. I mean, and then Savvy was going off the – remember Savvy was, was going to go off the ice, and we had to, we had to hold Savvy back on yeah. the ice. We, we, did, we couldn't let him leave. And so, yeah, I remember that. That was – that, that, that was Mike, but Mike, Mike, Mike wanted to be in charge and uh, didn't want to feel like anybody else was above him. And But mind you, Mike was a very good coach. I thought he was very good on the bench. He, he ran the bench well. He was very well prepared. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. God bless E.J. McGuire, who was our assistant, I thought was fabulous. Yeah. God rest and, your soul. Uh, yep, he was awesome. You yep. know, so, but it's just, I guess – you know, I, I don't know what, what his problem was with me, but obviously he didn't want me around. And... Don't worry, Squid. You weren't the only one. He had about 100 other guys that had the same, <laughs> he had the same opinion of, you know. Now, now, speaking of some of the guys that Keenan-type guys, now, JR, you, you were playing – you changed your game and adapted to what Keenan wanted you to do. But you had some pretty tough guys on that hockey club with you, guys like uh, Dave Manson and Manson. Bobby McGill and – Yep. Uh, and one of your favorites uh, I'd like you to touch on was uh, Wayne Van Dort. Yeah, Swoop. We call him <laughs> Big Swoop. Yeah. You, you, you want to talk about a guy who, thank goodness, thank goodness he, um, he played in the National Hockey League because he, he definitely wasn't going to be a teacher. That's for sure. Um, one of my favorite, literally he's one of my favorite um, teammates for a lot of reasons because he was one of those guys who's like, he would come into the locker room like, hey, guys. What's going on? Who are we playing today? And we're like, hey, Swoop, what's going on? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Right? Big fighter, right out of Vancouver, and um, couldn't couldn't score a goal if you you know if you, you know, hit the hit the ocean if you put him on the beach, you know, with luck. But he could fight, and he big was tough. Yo, oh, and he was big. This big old head of his, yeah. right? He's so he's so intimidating. But he's a big teddy bear, right? He's the nicest guy. Um, still, I'm still friends with him today, and I, I, I think he laughs when I describe, you know, what Swoop was like. I remember, and this was this is per- perfect vintage Wayne Van Orp. We're going to the airport for a road trip, and um, he's riding in the back seat. Mike Hudson and I are, are in the front seat, and we pass by this honker of a van. I mean, it's falling apart. It says it's rust all over the sides. It's an old, old looks like, um, uh, like, um, like one of those uh, bands that uh, that that was going to Woodstock, you know, back in the sixties, <laughs> right? With and on the side, on the side, it says with a phone number, and Swoop picks up the phone and calls this person and says, "I want to buy your van, man." 
And the guy, and I'm like, you're not, you're really going to buy that van? He's like, sure. He goes, how much you want for the van? The guy says like 1500 and Swoop goes, I'll give you 500 for the van. <laughs> right. And the guy took it. He bought this van and literally re redid the inside and put panels on side and redid the inside himself. I think he lived in the van for a little bit because he loved that van so much, but it was for a professional athlete to buy this shit clunker of a van off the highway going to the airport for a game um, was one of my favorite moments. And he loved that van and it, it seriously, it stunk and it was old and it was, <laughs> it was rusty and he thought this thing was the greatest thing in the world. And that's why I love Wayne Van Dorp because he just appreciated having anything, appreciated playing in the league, appreciated his friends. And um, but we were, I'm going to tell you one more story about Swoop. So we're skating in Montreal. We're going around. You know how in, in, in warm-ups, you go out one side, you know, you each go to the net and then you're kind of yeah. going this yeah. way. Well, Wayne wasn't watching where he was going. He was too busy in Montreal looking up in the stands as we're skating around. And I'm skating, and we come to the middle, and I look up, and here's, here's Swoop coming at me. Now, he weighed, outweighed me by about 150 pounds, and I didn't know what to do, and I had nothing else to do. So the only thing I could do is drop my shoulder really quick and lay a shoulder right into his chest. And I hit Wayne Van Dorp so hard in warm-ups in Montreal, right? And I rem and he went down in the end. He almost got knocked out. And I remember we came into the locker room after warm-ups, and he goes, nice hit, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's just swoop, right? He just didn't care. He goes, nice hit, kid. And, well, he, you know, I was, it was just – he's just – he's a wonderful man. You, wonderful you, man. You mentioned Dave Manson. And, uh, like, I got to tell you – as, as a player playing against him for quite a few years before I got to Chicago, I got to tell you, he's the only player in the league at the time that I was worried about or afraid of yep. because yep. I, I didn't know what he was capable of doing. Like when he came up and said, you go by me and score a goal again, I'm going to carve your eye yep. out. He meant yep. it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, yep. he wasn't kidding. And then you see him walk off after the game going down from the wise room, uh, little wife and three little girls. Mm -hmm. And you just look and, he, and he's like a kitty cat with, oh, with these he, girls. And he, he, he was so mean. He was so scary. Was, that is the reason why we called him Charlie. I was just going right? to say that. Yeah. There's a re yeah. reason why we call him Charlie. Like his and, eyes would roll up in his head, and it was oh. you just like go, oh boy. <laughs> so there, so we were talking about Keenan and how he yelled at people and how he screamed. Well, he came into the locker room after one period, and you know we're just sitting there. We haven't we just we haven't even taken our skates off yet in between periods or you know loosened up our skates. And Mike Keenan comes in and yells at, at Dave Manson, pretty much is blaming him for us losing. I remember Dave Manson got up and screamed and screamed at him. F you and he throws his throws his shoulder pads at Mike Keenan and Mike says it said something else again and and Charlie's Dave's eyes roll in the back of his head and he starts running through the locker room right at Keenan and Keenan's like holy shit he turns and runs out of the locker room and Dave Manson chased him out of the locker room onto the concrete with his skates and almost fell on the concrete chasing Mike Keenan out of the, out of the, and I think he scared the 
crap out of Mike Keenan. He didn't come back in the locker room the rest of the night because they, they would have knocked him out. Remember that fight, the, uh, the, um, the Valentine's Day massacre fight was, um, uh, was us versus St. Louis. They called it the Valentine's Day massacre. Um, yeah, I was gone Scott, by then. <laughs> yeah, Scott Stevens, no, Scott Stevens and him lined up at center ice and had one of the most epic fights I have ever seen. I would highly suggest people going to YouTube and watch um, watch Valentine, the Valentine's Day uh, Massacre. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Was the best fight I remember uh, was uh, in, when I was in Toronto was young Wendell Clark fighting them Ooh. right in front of Ooh. our bench. Yeah, And all they did was kept, took turns throwing haymakers. And I'm going, yeah. I don't even know how these two guys are standing. <laughs> standing. Like it was... It was Amazing. incredible, yep. and yep. but I got to mention the rink, the Chicago Stadium. It, I mean, mm-hmm. you were there for quite a few years, and I only got to experience that for a year and a half. But I got to tell you, one of the most iconic buildings. It mm-hmm. goes along its original six, but how noisy it was in there, especially in the playoffs. And yep. uh, it was a great place to play. The only downside was getting there for starters mm-hmm. because of the traffic yep. in Chicago yeah. and walking up and down those goddamn stairs, those stairs. every single day. <laughs> um, those stairs, there are 26 of them. And I, I know exactly how many because I counted them every time I went up because it, it, <laughs> it was the worst part of practice and it was the worst part of a game going up there. I remember Darren Pang came off, the little Darren Pang with all of his goalie equipment came off and he caught his leg at the top of the stair and rolled 26 stairs down that uh, down uh, from top to bottom. Luckily, he had all that goalie equipment on, but it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen, this little little goaltender, Darren Pang, rolling 26 stairs down. But you're, you're right. That, that building was so intimidating. It was so loud. During the anthem, everybody's standing up. The loudest I've ever heard a building in my life was the 19 the All-Star game. Uh, they were going to cancel the All-Star game because of the, uh, the Gulf War that was going on. Uh, uh, but they, um, all the fans had their their flags and their you know their signs um, honoring America, and it was one of the most one of the most intimidating, loudest, um, good heartfelt feeling. Um, uh, one of the best anthems I've ever heard, and the loudest I've ever heard a building was the '91 All Star Game, and Chicago was uh, Chicago fans were, were are are still today some of the best fans I've ever seen. Yeah, that goes without saying. And, and mm-hmm. just speaking along those lines, um, I, I just wanted to go back just a, a briefly in your career. Your first year, you're playing with these guys. You started climatizing yourself to the way Keenan wanted you to play. Was there a defining moment when you looked at yourself mm-hmm. in the morning and thought, I can play with these guys and I've made it and I know I yep. belong? Defining moment, my first playoff series against St. Louis um, in 1989, my, my first year, my rookie year. And um, I remember I'm playing and it's the second period and I get into a little altercation at the blue line with Glenn Featherstone. Mm-hmm. Glenn Featherstone, six, 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 five. I'm five eleven, And, you know, we're pushing him back and forth and I, I, I cross check him and he goes to cross check me. Now, if we were same height, I cross check me in the desk. He cross checked me right, hit me in my teeth, knocked all my teeth in half and, all over the place and and uh I, i'm going to the bench i don't have no idea what i'm doing what you know what i'm doing i'm in shock and the and um 
the referee comes over to me and uh, I open my mouth and all my teeth fall out of my mouth. It was Carrie Frazier, I believe. All the all my teeth fall out of my mouth. He's like, oh, he's like, oh my goodness. So it gives Glenn Featherstone a five-minute uh, major. I go in for two minutes. Um, I should go back. First period, I get a skate. Steve Larmer's skate hit me in a, in a scrum and cut me for about 16 stitches up yeah. all the way up from bottom to top of my nose. So I wasn't looking very good to start with. Then my teeth get knocked out the second period. Um, I get out of the penalty box in the second period um, after my teeth have been knocked out and uh, tip in a, um, a goal, tip in a shot from Steve Thomas, which ended up being the game winning goal of that night. So I'm in the locker room. We just won the game, won the series, and I have 16 stitches up in my nose, no teeth in front, sweating, and I have this big smile on my face. And um, I remember um, never wanting to look like that, but remember it was one of the best feelings that I ever had because, because I looked like a hockey player. I played like a hockey player. I did not quit and scored the winning goal, and I think people looked at me and after that, uh, that series and was like, no, we got something, we got something special here. This kid's got, um, not only does he have the talent, but he's got, the, he's got the heart. He wants to play no matter what. Well, now you've got the, okay. So we're on that. Uh, I was going to say this, but I, while we're on this topic, we'll go further with it. You play with the skill level that you had and you could score it. You were like a human missile for black, mm-hmm. a better way to describe you going after guys. Yeah. So you had some yeah. memorable hits, I believe over your career. Like, any yeah. that stand out now, this is a two-part question for you. One, a couple that you remember giving out, and the mm-hmm. one famous one with Darian Hatcher that came back yep. at you. Those yep. two, I think everybody who knows your career know those. So I have I, my my I have two. I'm gonna give you two of each. Okay. One one year playing in New Jersey and Lyle Odeline, who's a big, strong, tough, strapping guy. Um, was coming around the net. He was a defenseman. Yeah. And I always used to I always used to like to come in and cut off players at the other side of the net, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and hit them with that when they weren't expecting it. Well, he came around the net and he hit the goal line. And I cut him off at the goal line. And I hit him so hard. I hit him right right in the chest. And he'll tell you the story too if you ever talk to him. He says he remembers leaving the ice <laughs> from the goal line and hitting the boards behind him. I hit him so hard. Now this guy is 235 pounds at the time. I hit him so hard and hit him literally onto the boards. And he says he's never, never felt uh, the air come out of his lungs like that and flying so far in the air from somebody hitting him. And he couldn't believe that this little scrawny kid um, hit him um, as hard as, as he did. The next biggest hit I ever had was um, we were playing San Jose and I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember the, the the guy that I hit, but he was one of the assistant captains. Um, um, he, he he was a little guy, and I remember he was coming across the he was coming across the ice, and he pulled up to take a shot this way, and I caught him this way, and I hit him so hard that he literally did a half a flip in the air and landed on his stomach, and landed on his stomach, and he was knocked out, and I remember then taking him off the ice as they were taking him off the ice, Stu Grimson yelled, I, I wish I can remember, um, I wish I can remember his name. Um, but 
as he was going off the ice, he looked like Droopery the dog. He didn't know where he was. And Stu Grimson goes, hey, somebody better tell you to remind you when the Zamboni's on the ice next time. Right? <laughs> somebody should tell you the Zamboni's on the ice next time. Like he got hit by the Zamboni. And uh, I found out later that in the locker room after the game in San Jose, um, Lyndon Byers, who was playing for the team at the time, yeah. was not playing in this game. But I hit his teammates so hard and nobody came to do anything to me. Nobody came at me. Nobody fought me. Nobody said anything to me. And I remember Lyndon Byers went into the locker room after the period and just ripped the team for not sticking up for, uh, for one of their captains. And um, uh, his, his name's going to come to me. This is the concussions now that I have, you know, so, um, and two of my concussions came from the two biggest hits that I got scored a goal in St. Louis and right as I scored the goal, Jeff Courtnall comes with a with a high with a high shoulder, hits me in the in the jaw, and I remember going out in midair, and I woke up about 15, 20 minutes later, and uh, they were taking me to the hospital, um, literally knocked knocked out from Jeff Courtnall. Jeff Courtnall wasn't the most physical player, no. but he caught me he caught me so hard. Um, and then the legendary one is the one in Dallas. Um, but maybe you should preface it by talking about uh, yeah. Mike Medano and the competition. Exactly. He yeah. was the first pick overall yeah. for a few years ago when you were eight. So I'm sure there was yeah. a little competition. So, but yeah, yeah, this is so you guys, you know, I love to talk and I'm, I apologize for this, but this, no, we love this, this. this is, this is leading up to, to everything kind of how this, this transpired. So Mike Medano and I played against each other since we were little, little kids, eight years old, nine years old. He was from Michigan. I was from Boston. Um, going into the year, the, you know, the international camps, you know, with 15 and 14, it was always, who's the best American? Is it Mike Medano? Is it Jeremy Roenick? Is, um, you know, when we went to the USA camps and, you know, the under 16s, the, you know, the 15s, it was always Mike Medano, Jeremy Roenick. And Mike Medano was, was the best player, but I didn't, I didn't want him to think he was the best player. <laughs> So I always compared myself to Mike. Mike was my, he was my, my, benchmark. my lever. Yeah, he was my benchmark. Exactly. He was my lever. He was my, he was the guy that I wanted to make sure yeah. never got the best of me. He gets drafted number one. I get drafted eight. So he got the best of me again. Um, and I, I, it was always a competition with me. Every time I played Mike, I had to outplay him. I, I think I had more points than Mike uh, in my career for, like 16 years um, for 16 years. I had more points than Mike. Um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't until maybe um, 2004 when I started, started tapering off uh, in my, in my game that Mike, Mike surpassed me in, in points, but it was always a better player. I always marveled watching Mike Medano skate. One of the most beautiful skaters of mm -hmm. all time. When he yeah. rounded that night, when he rounded that net, and got his feet going, yeah. and the, his jersey was blowing, and his hair was blowing. I, I remember just watching them going, God damn it, I hate that guy. So beautiful. <laughs> He's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. Um, and I love Mike. I still love Mike today. We're, we're, we are friends. But now to get to the story of how, because I always, I mean, I got, I got suspended from hitting Mike in Philly. Um, there's a lot of stuff behind that. I always wanted to make sure I got the best of them. Well, this one game I'm playing in Phoenix. There's six, there's four, get three games left in the season until playoffs. So we're battling for a playoff spot. Mike 
comes behind the net and I cut him off and I knock him out. Right. Obviously you don't knock Mike Manano out and not, <laughs> not, you know, pay for it. So we have a back-to-back game. So as we're going to Dallas the next night, the next night, um, you know, I know it's going to be a hard game in Dallas the next day, day. Read the papers. Retribution's coming. Ronick's going to pay for the hit on on Medano. You know, all all the same stuff that you usually. I was I was the you know target number one, Mister the number one hated guy in, in Dallas that night. Sure enough, second shift of the game, I'm rounding the net, and as I'm rounding the net, Craig Ludwig Ludwig slashed me, broke my broke my thumb in half. And within a second, a split second, Darian Hatcher runs at me, jumps, throws his elbow into my jaw against the boards and, and shatters my jaw, breaks it in four places. And I remember getting up and I'm, I'm bleeding profusely from the mouth and uh, I could feel my, my, my jaw is not, not right. I go to the bench and the trainer looks in my mouth and I'm literally, if it wasn't for the skin in my mouth, I could have literally pulled up my jaw out i broke it in five places up top and two places down below and right on the side broke it in four perfectly big places and then as i'm moving my teeth on the bench the lady in the first row faints because she's seeing my 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 jaw literally come out of my mouth and blood and she literally goes down in, in the first row and i remember the trainer saying Okay, kid, we got you. You broke your jaw pretty good. We got to get out of here, go to the hospital. And I'm like, we have a five on we have a five on three power play now because of what happened. And I'm like, I'm not leaving this game right now. The, the, the trainer's like, Jeremy, your jaw is broken. I mean, it is it's coming out of your mouth. And I'm like, fuck that. I'm not leaving the game. I'm I'm playing. I am playing on this five on three. Never in my life did I want to score a goal more than that moment. It was a five on three. I was not going to leave the game. I went on the power play. We had a, a, a five minute power play and a two minute power play. So it was a five on three. And what I wanted to do is score a goal so bad so that I could score a goal. And then as I was leaving the game, leave and give the finger to every, every, every person in that building. I, I wanted that to happen. I didn't score the goal. Didn't happen. But I felt my jaw like, Every time I got touched, my jaw was was rattling around and it was and it was rubbing and I, I felt like it was um, like it was going to come right off my face. So I'm like, I can't play anymore. And I left and went to get my jaw. When I got my jaw uh, looked at at the hospital, and the doctor says, "Well, we can either fix your jaw here in Dallas, or you can go back with your team and get done back there." And I'm like, "Get me the hell out of Dallas! I don't want to be here. I don't trust any doctor here in Dallas to fix my jaw. Everybody hated me in Dallas." And uh, I remember flying home with the team and I'm spitting on the plane, spitting into a cup blood because I'm still bleeding up, uh, in my mouth. And I was playing cards. I actually won money playing cards and uh, I couldn't eat anything. Couldn't take any pain meds because as soon as I got home, there was a car waiting for me at the bottom of the uh, stairs and they took me right to the hospital to get my jaw fixed. But uh, um, that was, that was by far the hardest I've, I've ever been hit. And um Again, you talk about uh, things that define you and moments that define you. Uh, that defined me because 14 days later, after I broke my jaw, I played in uh, game, game seven of our first round against St. Louis. We ended up losing, but I played 
like 15 days later with a broken, with a broken jaw on four places. That well, listen, you can never be accused of picking your spots. We know that, right? Stories. <laughs> and so how about this story? I mean, one of my favorite ones I've heard of you is the one, and I, I hope you share this with the, the listeners, is the one with uh, Chief Berube. And, uh, you know, again, yeah. going, going mm-hmm. with Philadelphia, and you had Ron Hextall chasing you around, and yeah. this, is, this is a dandy. It, it's a good one. Um, and again, you, you remember what it was like back in the, in the 90s. It was tough hockey. And Philly was always a tough team. And it was Ron Hextall was on the team. Craig Berube was on the team. This was, you know, I, I would have to say it was probably 95, maybe. And, and um, Craig Hartsburg was the coach at the time. And I ran, I ran the net. I, I went to the net with the puck and I ended up, you know, taking out Ron Hextall and and Hexy went nuts and he went crazy and it was a big melee. Well, the next shift, next shift, Craig Hartsburg sends Bruby on the ice after me. So by the way, I was on the first line. Bruby's on the fourth line. You, you, don't, you don't throw you know, a fourth line fighter on the ice when the top line of Chicago goes on. Well, Bruby's chasing me around and he catches me in the corner, right? So it's, now it's, it's time. It's time for the, the young kid to get a beating for running the goaltender. So, Ruby grabs me and we start scuffling, we start fighting, and then everybody comes in, you know, because that's what it was. You know, top guys getting getting picked on, everybody fights. So it's a five on five in the corner. I remember the referee had had Ruby's arms wrapped up, and then everybody's fighting, and I got the and I'm, we're, I'm like and I'm looking at Chief and he's screaming at me, and I see his arms are locked up, and you know it's an unwritten rule you don't hit a guy that's down or you don't hit a guy who's defenseless. Well, you know, angel, devil. Don't do it. Knock his ass off. Boom. I cracked him. <laughs> went against it. I did the no-no. I, I went against the cardinal rule. You don't hit somebody that's, that's unprotected. Well, I smoked him. And I remember for four years afterwards, he chased me every time we played. He would, I would jump on the ice. He would stand up on the bench and scream for one of his players to come off so he can jump on it. He would chase me right to the bench. He's like, I'm going to call you one day. And I was just scared to death. I mean, I knew every time I'm playing Craig Bruby to get him, you know, be on my, on my horse. So then I get traded. I, I, get, I sign with the Flyers. And um, halfway through the season, the Flyers sign Craig Bruby as the minor league team kind of player coach. So um, our practice facility, we shared the same practice facility as the minor league team. Phantoms were on one side, Flyers on the other side. Well, Bruby can go anywhere he wants. I mean, he's been with the Flyers a, a, a long time. Everybody loves him. So I'm okay. taping my stick in the locker room. Bruby walks into the locker room. Everybody's like, hey, Chief, hey, Chief. I'm like, oh, God. Hey, Chief, how you doing? What's going on? And she's like, hey, Jay, what's going on? Boom! He caught me with a quick one right to the jaw. And I am kind of go down. I see the stars. I see stars. And he kind of, kind of lifts me up. He goes, I told you I'd get you, kid. <laughs> and I'm like, God damn it. I mean, and we actually played golf that day and we became friends, um, you know, what, right from that moment on. But that's how Bruby is. He's a man of his word. He's an honorable guy. He's the guy that you want on your team. And he was going to get me no matter how, no matter what, no matter when. And he did. And it happened to be we were playing for the same team and we we're in the locker room. Well, it, um, it, it's amazing. Yeah. You bring that up because back in those days, in the, in the 60s and the 70s, I mean, that's the way it was. If you mm-hmm. did something, guys would wait for years just to get back at someone. And Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, 
I mean, it was uh, one of those things that if you did a, a no-no like that, mm -hmm. uh, at some point, they're going to get you. They are going to get you. Yeah, it was well, a different game. Yeah, it was a different game back then. It was it was um, it was men versus men, and it was honorable. And it was you better stick up for yourself. And if you didn't, if if you did something and didn't drop your gloves and didn't fight, you were pretty much going to get run out of the league. And when they back then, you know, remember this, Rick? They didn't have the instigator rule. Yeah. So you literally, if you did something. You better get ready because there's there's going to be a lineup of guys that were going to come to fight you, and anybody would just grab you and tee up if you didn't play the game honorably or you didn't uh, if you did something that was kind of uh, against the grain. You were going to have to fight for yourself, and um, you know I miss that about the game. It's a lot different now. Or you could do what you did as a Leaf fan. I remember this one, and this was a painful one for me to tell this story about you. Yeah, and I think, hey, I'm going to go with this, this one. one. I, I was at this game, and you were playing the Leafs in the playoffs. Yeah, I was doing Leafs TV at the time, yeah, by you the were. way, too. The and, and the post-game shows. And the puck goes in your end. You back to get it. And Tucker, I think he started at center ice and built steam up and ran oh. you and hit you behind the net. Yeah. The hit was probably one of the hardest hits I've ever seen. You're on receiving end, so you can, you can verify that. The crowd actually stopped, and the players actually stopped and went sonic because they thought, what just happened? Oh, oh. You looked like a drunken sailor walking off the yep. ice. You walked off the ice, but I remember sitting to my, thinking to myself, okay, if this guy comes back, oh. we're in big trouble. And you remember, you scored the overtime yep. goal, and you, it did, was... you didn't do the finger. <laughs> you skated the whole lap of the ice and let the fans know who yep. scored the goal. Yeah. I, I, I remember that hit. I was coming around the net and he caught me. He caught me kind of like the way that I was explaining. I like to catch people. He cut me off on the side of the net and he hit me so hard. I literally went, went black, went blind. It could like, I sat there. I couldn't see anything. I, I, I felt like, you know, droopy the dog. I was like, yeah. I couldn't, I, it was again, one, one of the hardest I've ever been hit, but it was crazy because the biggest hit happened later. When you scored the goal. Yes. When I scored the goal. That's right. Sammy Kapanen. Sammy Kapanen. Little Sammy Kapanen. Yeah. He hits Sammy Kapanen so hard. Darcy Tucker is a tough mother. And you know, you know he's, he's a, again, he's a guy that you know how he's going to play. I love Darcy, too. He's a friend of mine. I love him. He hit Sammy Kapanen so hard against the boards. Yeah. And Sammy did the Sammy did the duck. He didn't know where he was, right? By the way, by the way, players today, if they got hit like Sammy Kaplan, they'd be done for three months. Three months they'd be out of the game if they got hit like Sammy Kaplan got hit in this game. Sammy Kaplan, the warrior, true true heart and soul guy he is, he stood up. He started trying to get to the bench. The fans are going crazy. I mean, that place was as loud as I've ever yeah. heard it in, yeah. in, at, at the Air Canis. It was the Air Canis Center, at the yeah, time, I think. Yeah. And the yeah. place is going nuts. We're in overtime. And Sammy Kapanen is literally falling. And he has the duck legs. And he's trying to – he doesn't know where to go. And I remember Keith Primo stepped off the bench and literally, like, you know, gave him the hook to bring him into the bench. He couldn't find where the bench was. So he gets off. I jump on 
the puck goes down the ice, and I think it was uh, Brian Leach or Sandine that turned the puck in over inside the blue line. Tony Tony Monte and I turned on the on the two on one the other way, and I roofed one over yeah, Eddie Belfour Eddie Belfour's <laughs> shoulder. I think it was the best <clears throat> shot I've ever had. It's my favorite goal I've ever scored. I always <laughs> loved playing Toronto because you know playing in Toronto to me was like was the ultimate. You know, playing in front of people that knew the game, playing in a historical city. I think I scored more points against Toronto than, than any other team. But that goal went over Eddie Balfour's shoulder. And, you know, I played with Eddie. He's one of the best. He was one of the best goaltenders of all time. But, you know, I saw that puck go in and the celebration. It, the, the place went from pandemonium to complete silence. Silence, yeah. Complete silence. I believe that a was – that was double or triple overtime. Too, it was double it overtime. Yeah, double, it was double yeah. overtime. It was double overtime. And I, there's a picture of me celebrating, right? Yes. I'm running <laughs> and everybody coming to me. And there's this picture. And it's a great picture because the look on my face celebrating, but that's not why it was a good picture. Because in the background, if you look at the fans in the picture, there are people that are like, like with their head back, there's people <laughs> with, their, with their hands on their face. But there's one person in the, in the picture that's going like this uh, yo! <laughs> giving me the giving me the finger and swearing at me and i'm like that's just that just symbol uh some is a like symbolic to me how toronto fans are right and that's they were so passionate and i knocked them out of the playoffs yes you did and they didn't and they didn't make the playoffs for nine years after that goal all right, we can change the subject now, okay, JR? <laughs> Folks, you've been listening to the part one of the, the JR interview, and uh, what a character. Isn't he a uh, script? I mean, what a guy. Well, you know what? He probably – he seems like a guy that should have started playing in the late 70s, not, not the late 80s. He's that type of character. He would have fit in really, really good back in the uh, late 70s and, and throughout the 80s. But uh, – Wonderful person. I, I've known Jr. for a long time. Played, got to play with him when he first came in, and but uh, boy, what a comical guy and, and a guy with a ton of stories. Oh boy, I mean, we could have talked. I mean, we talked to him, uh, folks. I mean, it said you're here in the first part of the interview. We we talked to him for almost two hours, and he could he was willing to keep going. So I mean, it's just. This guy's just loaded with them, and uh, you know he's and a pretty and a pretty good hockey player too. And a very <laughs> and a very good hockey player. He broke our hearts in Toronto a few times, and you know, and you'll hear all about that uh, when you listen to the podcast. So anyway, you want to uh, any parting shots before we uh, send it off? No, I. Uh, you know what? It's just it, it is so much fun listening to some of the antics that, that he did, and and things he set up uh, with teammates and so on. But uh, uh, just, you know what, I, it's refreshing for me to hear somebody talking like that and doing practical jokes and all that kind of stuff. It, it's refreshing to know that these people are, you know, for people to understand that just because you play in the National Hockey League or the NBA or whatever, doesn't mean you're not a normal person that likes to have fun. Exactly. Exactly. And he certainly takes that to another level. Oh, no, does he ever. It, 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 it's a, it, it was a lot of fun listening to JR. So, folks, we want to thank you again for tuning in. Uh, tune in next week for part two of the JR interview. Tune in to us at Squid and the Ultimate Leaf Fan on Twitter, 
follow us on ultimately spin on instagram or facebook and rick vibe on instagram or twitter guys thanks for joining us and talk to you next week